0: Have you ever eaten an entire Costco-sized bag of Munchies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Um, <laughs> I haven't. I just but. did. So I'm proud of you. Excuse me for uh, my <laughs> my flatulence. <laughs> I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. I honestly, it's been my dinner two times this week and uh I've regretted it each time but yet I can't keep going back
1: (laughs) I uh recently bought a bag of chips at Walmart or not Walmart at Costco Mm -hmm. and normally if I get a bag of chips at like Walmart I could probably eat the whole bag like in a movie like during a movie um but the Costco size bags I was like wow this is gonna last me a long time
0: yeah huge thing and it um, has. <laughs> so well, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I just don't want them to go stale, you know? I'm just trying to <laughs> think for my good. future self. A hundred percent. Well, welcome back, guys, to paranormal. We are here, your two favorite non-investigative, spooky professional podcasters. And, <laughs> and we are <laughs> we are back with a regular episode of Paranormal and I think we've got a real good one for you this time. Yeah, I'm really not excited that any about this of the one. other episodes aren't the really good, but this one is really. I think they're really compelling really, stories. Really good. Yeah. Really, really good. So, yeah. Do you want mm-hmm. to go into horoscopes and then tell them the th- the theme of the episode?
1: Yeah, let's do horoscopes first. We'll make them sweat. We'll make yeah. Let's face. make them sweat a
0: little bit. Okay, sounds good oh wow this one if conf- <laughs> if, oh, if conflict arises in your world gemini you must keep in mind that there is no one else to blame except you oh really
1: okay keep- let's talk about this <laughs> let's keeping
0: your sights set on one goal is useful as you concentrate all your energy towards that one thing at the same time, you may be losing perspective on what's going on around you. Make sure you continue to be a team player by keeping an eye out for the people in the wings. Ooh, fuck! I don't you, know. If you're gonna <laughs> like that one.
1: There's, con- yeah. There, was, okay. Spot on about conflict today. Yeah, yeah. Not spot on about it being my fault. Uh huh. Like I. I i definitely didn't do anything wrong uh and watch out for the team players i don't have any team players it seems so i'll just a, continue yeah. on my own <laughs> so.
0: Yeah. sorry it says what look it out says for make one. sure you continue to be a team player
1: oh well there's no there's no one that's a part Me? of my team so right. i'll just
0: so. continue trucking by myself so
1: great thanks that's, that's, thanks. that's horoscope Oh um. Okay, Leo, you need to learn an important lesson and follow through. As you strive for perfection, you may get the feeling that nothing is ever fully completed. Try not to be so hard on yourself. The work that you've finished so far is more than likely much better than what most people could ever accomplish. Oh. Put, the, put the final touches on whatever you're doing and move on. I have a feeling this struck That quickly. is today.
0: fucking crazy spot on about. Yes. Honestly, this is something I struggle with constantly. Like I constantly feel like I could be making something better or doing something more, adding more to something. And Mm -hmm. it just delays the process. And then I end up getting crazy anxiety when I actually have to show people or launch Mm -hmm. it because I'm like, that could have been better. And then half the time when I put less effort into something, everyone is like completely wowed by it. And I'm like, oh, why don't I just stop fucking getting in my own head about it every single time and just delivering it to people when it's like, to me, half done. But to them, it's like, oh, no, this is great. Let's just move forward rather than me like literally busting my balls to do something that no one's even going to notice. Like no one's going to notice those little details that I obsess over. So. Right. Yeah, that is very accurate and Accu- so you got wise some accurate horoscopes today yes yeah. today has and wise been words. wise words thank you for that yeah. i needed that <laughs> okay um do you want to introduce our theme yeah so we've chosen
1: the theme of the devil made me do it because mm-hmm. the new the new conjuring movie is coming out soon um it's so out it's out Oh, I didn't even realize mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the new Conjuring movie is out. Is out. So we are doing uh, two stories about people who blamed their, I guess, um, crimes on being possessed by the devil. So yes, I'm excited ma'am. about this one.
0: Oh, yeah. OK. So mine is is based upon exactly the story of um, the Conjuring Devil, the mm-hmm. Devil Made Me Do a Case. It is around the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. I did watch the movie. This the movie takes a very d- different approach to the story. As they it's not about. Do, yeah. It's not about the trial. It's not about all of the things that actually occurred. They basically base the movie around the Warrens and their investigation and all their kind of other things involved with around this trial, I guess. So, um, but that's not, I'm going to focus on the actual, the actual event and the background of the event and the trial itself and what all unfolded there. And we'll add some Ed and Lorraine commentary as they were (laughs) directly related and part of this um, uh, event that occurred. So, perfect. Before I get into the story, I will say I got my information from the New newyorkpost.com, the haunting real story behind The Conjuring, oxygen.com, true crime, uh, Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It, and Arnie Johnson's trial, as well as the trial of Arnie Johnson um, from Wikipedia. So, insanity, self-defense, and passion are some of the usual reasons attached to a not guilty plea during a murder trial. One you don't hear very often, however, is Satan. The trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, also known as the Devil Made Me Do It case, is the first known court case in the United States in which the defense sought to prove innocence based upon the defendant's claim of demonic possession and denial of personal responsibility for the crime. On November 24, 1981, in Brookfield, Connecticut, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter for the killing of his landlord, Alan Bono. According to testimony by the Glatzel family, 11-year-old David Glatzel had played host to a demon after witnessing a number of increasingly ominous occurrences involving David, where David regularly saw a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features, and jagged teeth, pointed ears, Horns and hooves, and that the creature told him to beware. As his condition worsened, the boy would growl, hiss, and quote passages from Paradise Lost. Exhausted and terrified, his parents decided to enlist the aid of Ed and Lorraine Warren in a last ditch effort to cure David. The Glatzel family, along with the Warrens, then proceeded to have multiple priests petition the church to have a formal exorcism performed on David. The process continued for several days, concluding when, according to those present, a demon fled the child's body and took up residence within Arnie. These These events were documented in the book The Devil in Connecticut by Gerard Brittle. Several months later, Arnie killed his landlord during a heated conversation. His defense lawyer argued in court that he was possessed but the judge ruled that such a defense could never be proven and was therefore infeasible in a court of law. Arnie was subsequently convicted, though he only served five of a 10 to 20-year sentence. So what really happened to David Glatzel? And was Arnie Johnson really possessed by the devil to the point that he murdered someone? Well, here are the events that led up to the trial. So Arnie Cheyenne Johnson and Debbie Glatzel, David's sister, who was Arnie's girlfriend at the time, provided first-hand accounts for the version of events in the Discovery Channel's "A Haunting, the episode called Where Demons Dwell. They did not believe in demonic activities themselves, but asserted that paranormal activity began after they went to clean up a rental property they had just acquired. David recollected that an old man appeared, pushing and terrifying him. The couple initially thought David was using the old man as an excuse to avoid cleaning, But David informed them that the old man had vowed to harm the Glatzels if they moved into the rental home. David's visions of the old man included the man appearing as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. Although the family allegedly heard strange noises coming from the attic, no one but David ever witnessed the old man. After David experienced night terrors, exhibited strange behavior, and obtained unexplained scratches and bruises, the family then called upon the services of a Catholic priest, who attempted to bless the house. The terrified family concluded that the house was evil and would no longer continue to rent it. However, David's visions worsened and began to occur in the daytime as well. Twelve days after the original incident, the family summoned the self-proclaimed demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren to assist. Lorraine allegedly witnessed a black mist materialize next to David, an apparent indication of a dark presence. Debbie and her mother told the Warrens that they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands and that red marks had appeared on his neck afterward. David had started to growl, hiss speak in otherworldly voices, and recite passages from the Bible or Paradise Lost. His mother, Judy Glatzel, and the Warrens claimed that in the house, plates levitated, rocking chairs flew through the air, and a toy dinosaur walked around. The Glatzels recounted how each night a family member would remain awake with David as he suffered through spasms and convulsions. After receiving a prognosis of multiple possessions from the Warrens, David was subjected to three lesser exorcisms. Lorraine asserts that David levitated, ceased breathing for a time, and even demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition, specifically in relation to the manslaughter Johnson would later commit. Speaking with People in 1981... Ed Warren said that he and his wife knew, after these exorcisms, that 43 demons were inside David. They d- demanded names, and David gave us 43. However, Father Nicholas Greco of the Diocese of Pritchport told people at the time that while the situation with David and the Glatzels was investigated by the church— no exorcism was ever performed because the family would not submit David to necessary psychological tests beforehand. So my understanding is that Ed and Lorraine did those exorcisms either with a priest on the sly or whatever because the church wouldn't actually do them formally because he, they, they wouldn't get him tested beforehand. In October 1980, the Warrens contacted Brookfield police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. According to eyewitness testimony, Arnie Johnson coerced one of the demons purportedly within David to possess him while participating in David's exorcisms. Lorraine Warren explained that during one of the rituals, Johnson seemed to sacrifice himself to save the boy. Johnson leaped up and cried to the demon, Come into me, I'll fight you. Come into me, she recalled. His impassioned request worked, they claimed Johnson was possessed. According to reports, a few days after Johnson egged the demon on during the exorcism, he was attacked rather viciously by the demon, which allegedly took control of his car and forced it into a tree. Fortunately, Johnson was unharmed. After this incident, Johnson returned to the rental property to examine an old well that supposedly housed the demon. In both the dramatized version and his personal account, Johnson recollects that this was his final encounter with the demon while completely lucid. After encountering the demon at the well and making eye contact with it, he became possessed. The Warns claim to have warned him not to do this, meaning make eye contact with the demon. As David's condition worsened further, Debbie and Johnson, who had been living in her mother's home, decided it was time to move. Meanwhile, Debbie was hired by Alan Bono, a new resident in Brookfield, as a dog groomer. Debbie and Johnson began renting an apartment close to her place of employment. After moving in, Johnson started to exhibit odd behavior that was strikingly similar to David's, causing Debbie to fear that he had become possessed as well. According to Debbie, Johnson would fall into a trance-like state wherein he would growl and hallucinate, but later have no memory of it. On February 16, 1981, Johnson called in sick to his job at Wright Tree Service and joined Debbie at the kennel where she worked, along with his sister Wanda and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary. Bono, the couple's landlord and Debbie's employer, bought the group lunch at a local bar and proceeded to drink heavily. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel. Debbie then took the girls to get pizza, but insisted they return quickly, anticipating trouble. When they returned, Bono, intoxicated at this point, became agitated. Everyone left the room at Debbie's urging, except Bono, who seized Mary and refused to let her go. Johnson headed back to the apartment and ordered Bono to release Mary. Wanda recounted the following events to the police. Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried, in vain, to pull Johnson away. Johnson, growling like an animal, then drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Bono repeatedly. Bono died several hours later. According to Johnson's lawyer, Bono had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest, and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Johnson was discovered two miles from the site of the killing and was held at the Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail of 125,000. This was the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. The day after the killing, Lorraine Warren informed the Brookfield police that Johnson was in fact possessed when the crime was committed. His attorney, 33-year-old Martin Manila, told the Post ahead of the trial that he believed Bono's stab wounds were far too deep to have been done by human hands. He also told the paper that the potential for a demonic possession defense was introduced by the Warrens. I didn't come up with this, Manila said. This is what was presented to me. I went to see Ed and Lorraine and I decided to take the case after talking to them. They told me that when you're possessed, you have no control over your actions and that stuck in mind. A media blitz soon surrounded the story, fueled in part by the Warrens, whose agents promised that lectures, a book, and even a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. Martin Manila, Johnson's lawyer, received calls from all over the world about what was being called the Demon Murder murder Trial. Manila traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, though neither went to trial. He planned to fly an exorcism specialist from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priests who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcisms if they did not cooperate with the defense. The trial took place in Connecticut's Superior Court in Danbury beginning on October 28, 1981. Manila attempted to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession, but the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, promptly rejected this defense. Callahan argued that no such defense could ever exist in a court of law due to lack of evidence and that it would be irrelevant and unscientific to allow related testimony. The defense chose to imply that Johnson acted in self-defense instead. Because of this, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the killing. The jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days before convicting Johnson on November 24, 1981, of first-degree manslaughter. The incident led to the creation of a television film titled The Demon Murder Case on NBC and preparations for a feature film, the production of which was stalled due to internal conflicts. In 1983, Gerard Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warren, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine Warren stated that profits for the book were shared with the family. Sources confirmed that $2,000 was paid to the family by the book publisher. Upon the book's republication in 2006 by iUniverse, David Glatzel and his brother Carl Glatzel Jr. sued the authors of the book for violating their right to privacy, libel, and intentional affliction of emotional distress. Carl also claimed that the book alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness, and that the book presented him as the villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. He asserted that the Warrens told him the story would make the family millionaires and would help get Johnson out of jail. According to Carl Glatzel, the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and business opportunities. In 2007, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of the event surrounding his brother. Lorraine Warren defended her work with the family, saying that the six priests who were involved in the incident agreed at the time that the boy was indeed possessed and that the supernatural events she described were real. Brittle, author of The Devil in Connecticut, says he wrote the book because the family wanted the story told, that he possesses video of over 100 hours of his interviews with the family, and that they signed off on the book as accurate before it went to print. Glatzel's father, Carl Glatzel Sr., denies telling the authors that his son was possessed. Johnson and Debbie, however, who are now married, wholeheartedly support the Warrens' account of demonic possession and have stated that the Glatzels in question are suing simply for monetary purposes. The Warrens, who are now dead, said the freed Johnson learned to conquer his demon on his own. Possession doesn't last 24 hours a day. Ed Warren told the AP at the time. It comes quickly and leaves quickly. Arnie understands what happened to him. He knows now if something happens, how to ward it off, and he won't be stupid enough to take on the devil again. And that's the story of how the devil made me do it. Jeez.
1: Anything with Ed and Lorraine, I always have to take with a grain of salt.
0: I know. It's, it's, (laughs) I mean, obviously, so there's... i just don't get why there's always holes in their yeah
1: why the refusal for a psychiatric evaluation prior to an exorcism
0: i don't understand i don't know um they also there's video like there's audio footage of this Mm -hmm. kid going through shit so like right there's definitely evidence of something happening to this kid and it is like it it doesn't seem like a regular. I don't know. I really don't know what mm-hmm. someone who is the difference between a demonic possession and and a psychotic break looks like. Mm-hmm. Like I've never seen the difference, so I can't speak on it. <laughs> right. Um. I only assume that maybe they didn't want to get him psychologically evaluated for a couple of reasons, P- potentially cost related. Um. Mm-hmm. The costs uh, of doing that uh also like basically saying to this 11 year old child that there's something mentally wrong with him and how that could affect him as well i mean mm-hmm. saying that you're possessed by a demon probably wouldn't help either but i feel like maybe <laughs> they felt there was less there's less stigma around it I, mean, I don't sure i don't know i really don't know um yeah but
1: regardless, then it moves on to Arnie. So like So then, the fact it moves right? on
0: to Arnie is the whole like how like, okay, so there's forty-three demons in this kid. They were doing some shit trying to get the demons out, and one of the demons latched on to Arnie, apparently. Right. And right. both the mother though, both the mother and the daughter, I understand why the daughter, because that's her boyfriend, would maybe want to defend him, maybe want to say we, i right. saw i saw the demon latch onto him whatever but the right. mother said it as well so it's like true well i mean is it is it her just defending her daughter's boyfriend too like what's the what's what's the reason for protecting this boy and yeah, that's true and so i will say too he was let go after five years because of good behavior okay so it feels as if whether or not there was a demonic possession here, that this guy is probably not a criminal by nature and maybe doesn't have mm-hmm. like a criminal mind and was potentially defending a situation that was out of hand. And I'm surprised that they did convict him, even if it was self-defense. I feel like he was defending somebody else. That's the problem. It wasn't he was defending That's himself. True. That's so, true. So... There's there's a lot of moving elements in this scenario. Yeah. And I also want to know if there were 43 demons in this kid and one left, what happened to the rest of them? Where are the other 40, 42? <laughs> 42 go. Like, so they got rid of all 42 except for this one? Right like just i don't i don't know and i'm also, really confused about why he was in a well all of a sudden like why was the demon just like i guess he was following arnie around but he like latched on to him but like why the well like i don't,
1: I don't i'm know. also confused about how they're saying like oh demons just they leave when they want to leave i'm like no i thought their whole purpose was to like take your soul like
0: i thought that was the
1: whole yeah, reason
0: for this. i feel as well like that is more like they're taking a um not a, an actual demon but like your demons so like your traumas oh. got it, and using that as like oh, oh yeah they come and go <laughs> got it yeah it's like I okay that. well that that's fair <laughs> but that doesn't mean that he was possessed by an actual demon by an actual but, demon right. right
1: oh my gosh all right, well, before I tell my story, I guess we should probably take a quick break. Yeah, let's take a little bit of a break and you guys we'll can digest that. Okay, so we're back and I decided to do the story of Michael Taylor, which I had never heard before Mm -hmm. writing this story. So I'm excited because this is uh, crazy. So in 1974, the Taylor family consisted of husband Michael, wife Christine, their five children, and their family dog. The family were settled in Ausset, England, and their home was considered cheerful and happy by many close friends and family members. Michael was always described as a gentle and loving husband uh, and father to the family. The only hardship that seemed to befall the family was that a few years prior, Michael had suffered from a back injury. This resulted in his unemployment and chronic pain, which then manifested itself into depression. Other than this, their life seemed to be happy and fulfilling. So, in Osset, majority of the people were extremely religious and most were Christian, but the Taylors were not overly religious. They didn't really go to mass. They didn't really have a relationship with the church at all. But Michael did have a friend named Barbara Wardman, and she was very religious. And she thought that it would do Michael good to introduce him to a group called the Christian Fellowship Group, which was led by a woman named Marie Robinson. So Michael meets Marie and he starts spending like an insane amount of time with her. Some people would say that it was an inappropriate amount of time. Michael started attending all of the meetings with this group. He would even join Marie in the congregations where they would exercise people of their sins and they would speak in tongues. And Michael and Marie would even have private rituals together. They would stay up all night and make the sign of the cross at each other all night long. They thought this ritual would ward off the evil power of the full moon. So, I mean, just a lot of like really, yeah, like (laughs) okay, Uh, like a wild Friday night. Um, So, soon the rest of the congregation was talking shit about Michael and Marie's weird relationship, and I mean obviously, like, who wouldn't at that point? So, Obviously, now that Michael is spending all of this time with Marie and her congregation, things at home are not going as well as they used to go. Michael is very rarely at home. He almost never sees his family. And when he does see his family, he's irritated by them. He's very abrasive towards them. Just not a very pleasant guy to be around. So basically a complete 180 from the sweet and doting family man that he used to be. Right. Right. His family chalk up this new attitude and persona to the church group that he's now a part of. They think that the church is a bad influence on him, and his wife, Christine, has started hearing about this weird relationship with Marie, and so she also started noticing Michael's relationship with her was inappropriate for a married man. So Christine is obviously pissed, and she ends up attending one of their congregations, And I'm not sure if the family was like attending these regularly with him or if they attended them sporadically. Right. But either way, she's at this one congregation. And during it, she decides that she's going to publicly accuse Michael of being unfaithful with Marie. So this sets Michael off, but not at who you would think. Instead of being upset with Christine and lashing out at her, Michael takes his aggression out on Marie. He said that he felt oh. an evil influence. Yeah, he said that he felt an evil influence cast a shadow over him. And because of this evil force, he lashed out at Marie verbally and physically. And it got so bad that several of the churchgoers had to step in to restrain him because they were worried that he was going to seriously injure himself or Marie. So. Marie described the attack, uh, and so she's quoted as as saying, I suddenly glanced at Mike and his whole features changed. He almost looked bestial. He kept looking at me and there was a really wild look in his eyes. I started screaming at him out of fear. I started speaking in tongues and Mike also screamed at me in tongues. I was on the verge of death and I seemed to come to my senses. I knew that, the, that only the name of Jesus would save me and I just started saying over and over again, Jesus. When Christine heard me calling on the name of Jesus, she started saying it too. And I believe firmly that it was only by calling on his name that I was not killed. Michael has no memory of the incident. The very next day... Marie absolved him of the incident and welcomed him back to the group with open arms. But the rest of the group was like, no, thanks. We'll keep our distance. Like, we'll keep an eye on him. They were not, like, trusting of him. But he was still allowed to come back to, like, their congregations. Um. So even though Marie right. took him back, Michael continued with his out-of-character behavior. And he got worse as time went on. It got to the point where several ministers in the community ended up like they ended up calling on them to come and help and they came to the conclusion that demonic forces were behind michael's change in personality eventually the local vicar advised that an exorcism should be performed on michael so two ministers father peter vincent and reverend raymond smith came to do the exorcism it was scheduled for midnight on october 5th 1974 at the saint thames church in barnsley The Christian fellowship group were in attendance, and the ritual went all through the night and into the next morning. So almost as soon as the exorcism started, Michael went bonkers. He was spitting, scratching, convulsing, you name it. They ended up needing to tie him with restraints to the floor. The exorcism went on for eight hours, and through the entire thing, Michael was still trying to bite and maim anyone who came near him. The priests claimed that there were 40 demons inside of Michael and they had to be forcefully removed one by one. By the time the eight hours had gone by, the priests decided that they had to stop because they were exhausted and that they were going to have to finish the exorcism at a later date, which I didn't know was a thing. Um, The priests, right? Like, yeah, what?
0: where does he go just to tie him up you're gonna find out to it's it so great um, so, oh. um the priests
1: the priests also claimed that there were still three demons that remained inside of michael the demons of insanity anger and murder there was an attendee named margaret's right there was an attendee oh. named margaret smith who claims that she heard God speaking to her, telling her that they had to finish the exorcism or Michael would murder Christine. So she speaks up and she advises the priests, but the priests brush her off and they tell Michael and Christine to go home and rest and that they would prepare for the final part of the exorcism, which was supposed to be done the very next day. So God bless you, Mar- uh, Margaret, but it didn't work at around 9:45 the next morning, not even 2 hours after Michael and Christine were told to go home and rest, a police officer was passing through the Taylor's neighborhood. He was coming around the corner, his name was Officer Ian Walker, and he saw a man stumbling around the middle of the street, naked and covered in blood. Ian Walker stopped the car. Mhm. Oh,
0: he approached shit. the man.
1: The man went into the fetal position and started screaming over and over quote this is the blood of satan the man was michael taylor in case you guys didn't know that
0: oh wow i didn't know that That shocker wow (laughs) the officer called for
1: an ambulance because he was afraid that michael had hurt himself or someone else i mean good call he is covered head to toe in blood um in the article that i read it described him as being like
0: slick with the blood like it was like that's So in the Arnie case, too, he was found just wandering around covered in blood as well, which is very interesting.
1: Yeah, this is like this. Michael continued to rant and rave about Satan, and he continued screaming about it while he was loaded into the ambulance and taken away. Obviously, this attracts like a bunch of people from the neighborhood who come out and they tell the officer the identity of the man and they tell him where he lives. So the officer calls for backup and he proceeds to the tailor's address. So Walker makes his way to the tailor house and there are officers that are already at the scene, which is weird because he's like on the road, right? So he should have been the first one to get there. But apparently concerned neighbors had heard that there was something going on and they already phoned the police. So as Walker was making his way to the door, his inspector came out vomiting and said, quote you don't want to see this one son I've never seen I've seen nothing like it before and I've seen a few it's the wife she's got no no he's ripped at her son it's a right mess (gasps) in there there's not much of her left you don't want to see it
0: end quote yeah so Like, that seems like it goes beyond just, like, a crime of passion or, like... Oh, yeah. Like, wanting to just kill somebody. Walker
1: ignores him, and he goes in anyway. The front room was completely destroyed. There was blood, flesh, and brain matter covering every surface in the room. On the floor lay... Yeah. On the floor lay the remains of Christine Taylor and the family dog. Both almost un... Oh my God! Yeah. No, both of them were almost unrecognizable. At around nine thirty in the morning, Michael had killed Christine in their family home. Michael had strangled Christine and tore her face off. No murder weapon was used. He did it with his bare hands.
0: Yeah, excuse so sorry you. sorry to, to
1: tell you that. And then. Yeah the at this point the articles that I was reading got really really gory in regards to her and the dog's injuries and I don't really feel it that it's necessary to like read them out for shock value. Yeah we don't want to so If you guys want to read about it you yeah, can no. but I just I decided to not include more than what I've already said here because what I've already said is like bad enough and it's it is so much worse than what I've said. Um. Yeah, so it was described as the most horrific scene that any officer who attended it had ever seen. After Michael was released from the hospital, he was taken into police custody. Inspector Brian and oh, and they did like um like a basically to see if he was like competent to be questioned by police and he was. So, Inspector Brian Smith asked him what had happened, and Michael replied, "It was a long night." They danced around me and burned my cross because it was tainted with evil. They had me in the church all night. Look at my hands. I was banging on the floor. The power was in me. I couldn't get rid of it and neither could they. They were too late. I was compelled by a force within me to destroy everything living within the house. Michael claims he couldn't remember anything and insisted that he loved his wife Inspector Smith asked him how he felt, and he replied, Released. I am released. It is done. The evil, the evil in her has been destroyed. Michael Taylor was charged with murdering his wife, and he was sent to Broadmoor Secure Hospital to await trial. The trial was set to start in March 1975, and when it started, the jury was advised that the evidence they were about to hear would make it difficult to believe that they were not back in the Middle Ages. So Michael testified that he had no recollection of the murder, that he loved his wife, and that he was under the control of evil supernatural forces, and he also thought that Christine was possessed by demons as well. His defense decided that their best bet was to discredit the Christian fellowship group and the priests who performed the exorcism. They said that the group was a fanatical cult who had managed to influence Michael with powerful mind control and indoctrination, which only further exacerbated his mental illness, which I agree. Um, Yeah, yeah. that
0: makes that. And the prosecution,
1: actually, the people who are like charging him also placed blame on the exorcism. They also believed that the ritual had only made Michael's mental illness worse, and that coupled with the warped ideologies that the Christian Fellowship Group had instilled in Michael, it ended up pushing him into a state of madness. Michael's defense lawyer made a personal statement in the trial, which usually doesn't happen, and he said, I am aware that it is generally regarded as improper for an advocate to express any personal feeling or opinion about the case in which he is engaged. I am afraid I find it quite impossible to observe such constraints in this case. Let those who truly are responsible for this killing stand up. We submit that Taylor is a mere cipher. The real guilt lies elsewhere. Religion is the key. Those who have been referred to in evidence, and those clerics in particular, should be with him in spirit now. In this building and each day he is incarcerated in Broadmoor, and not least on the day that he must endure the bitter reunion with his five motherless children. The jury found Michael not guilty by reason of insanity. He would spend two years at Broadmoor Secure Hospital, and then another two years at Broadmoor Royal Inf- sorry, Infirmary, uh, and he was then released to the public. After the case, there was a huge public outcry regarding the use of exorcisms in the church. And it did end up becoming the last exorcism that was performed by the Anglican church. They did, yeah, they did defend themselves. The priests that were involved continued to insist that Michael was absolutely possessed by demons. Father Vincent's career was unaffected after the case. And Reverend Raymond Smith agreed that the situation was not handled properly and that the exorcism had failed. But again, they are swearing he was possessed. Right. After Michael was released, he went back to live in Osset. Michael somehow managed to largely stay out of the public eye until July of 2005. He was arrested for sexual harassment and inappropriate conduct with an underage girl. Yeah. During the court hearing, he admitted his fault, but then he asked, am I going to Broadmoor for murdering my wife? He's there's something off.
0: And he needs to he he's clearly not what, like in the in real life. Yes. Like he's he's out so of reality. He was
1: in custody for a week because of the sexual assault and his psychiatric psychiatric problems from 1975 came to the surface once again. But as soon as he was bailed out, they disappeared. He ended up with three years of community service with a condition of psychiatric treatment. And I'm going to end the story with a quote from Officer Ian Walker. And he says, Of all the incidents in which I was involved in 30 years of police work, nothing affected me like this one. The stupidity and futility of it all, the complete and utter waste of life and destruction of a family, not to mention the death and other traumas, are far beyond anything else I have ever come across. Obviously, my wife asked questions, But there are some things that you do not take home, and this was one of them. However, within the next 24 to 48 hours, the news hit the national papers and the TV news bulletins. You just bury it and get on with your life as best you can. Before this event, I was agnostic, and now I'm an atheist. And that is the story of the possession and exorcism of Michael Taylor and the murder of Christine Taylor.
0: That's very sad and uh, unfortunate and I I'd like to know what was actually going on between him and Mary. Mm-hmm. Like like was there something going on and like was he just covering it up or was it really like was this church just f- fucking with his, I, his mind? I I really like, think the
1: church was just fucking with his mind. I think he had mental problems. His back
0: yeah, he was susceptible <laughs> to things that probably could have warped his from perceptions, what
1: I, and, but from I, what I remember, his back injury was from falling off of a bridge. so who's to say that he didn't also have like a a traumatic head injury? I think he was I think they were fanatical. I think his defense lawyer was or the whoever said it, I think it was his defense lawyer was correct in saying that. Um, they definitely were not normal, and I'm thinking that you know him and marie sitting in the same room making the sign of the cross at each other all throughout the night to ward off the evil powers of a full moon is like there's something not right there like it's like there's just something not correct
0: so um yeah there's something there's something not right and any therapy that could have helped him through whatever mental trauma he could have experienced whatever this was doing the reverse absolutely like this was just making him and so then you
1: take this man who's like already you know in a bad mental state and then you make him stay up all through the night and into the next morning while you're you're gonna get a psychotic break. There, he said that they were pouring holy water on him that they were shoving crucifixes into his mouth like He's being traumatized. Oh he has mental problems. Yes. And then he's being told yes. you have three demons still inside of you and one of them is murder. And then he goes home and That's commits nuts. murder. Like, yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if it was an actual possession or not. They're swearing up and down it was, but who knows?
0: <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Who Either knows? way, it's In tragic. In cases, who knows? Yeah. It's just odd, like in both cases, they there was a lot of similarities, especially with, A, the amount of demons. Yeah, I was going to say Kinda that actually odd. during your story, but yeah. And I wonder, because I was going to ask, this one was around 1975, and the Arnie case was in 1981, and I wonder if because of previous cases and exorcisms not working or people not wanting exorcisms to take place if that's why the church was so against doing this david glatzel exorcism to begin with and why lorraine and ed had to kind of step in and say okay well we'll do our Mm -hmm. own um which may or may not have been the right thing to do because they're obviously not i don't know who knows anyway well I guess we can move on to our fuck Mary Kills, which yeah. are <laughs> interesting. Um, so we've decided to do uh um, actors who were possessed in movies by the devil or whoever else or demons or whoever. So yeah. yes. Do you wanna go first? Um sure. So okay. I will do
1: Emily Rose from The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Okay. George Lutz from the Amityville Horror. Mm, okay. And I will do Katie from Paranormal Activity.
0: Oh, okay. 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 Um, so Emily Rose, I feel I will kill. Mm-hmm. I think just because. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think I'll just kill her because okay. I just think she's that's a so she's a weirdo um okay. i would like to marry amityville guy because george lots fe- yeah i feel like if we took him out of the house we'd live like a great life like everything that's would be fine. Fair. that's um, fair um and the girl from paranormal activity i wouldn't want to marry nor would i really want to kill her because I feel like she's not that bad like she's not she doesn't gross me out like I don't I mean she's she's she's, she's obviously has she's obviously (laughs) like possessed but I feel like she only got possessed sometimes so I feel like I could maybe like like hit it and quit it pretty quick fair okay okay so I'll go with that okay i think i would switch okay
1: um emily rose and katie yeah katie terrifies me her whole like origin story too is that like she was born into a Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. family of witches and shit like that right where it's like yes we're taking the firstborn son type thing yeah as a sacrifice um but like (laughs) like So I'd be afraid if I have sex with her whenever am i going to get pregnant. Is she gonna take my baby away. And then also just like I would be afraid to get like physically close to her. Like mm-hmm. she scares the shit out of me. Really? Okay. Rose, I feel like she had moments in time where she wasn't showing obvious signs of possession signs of, so i feel yeah. like i could be like okay now is our time to get it on yeah, and then fair. george lutz i'm same as you we just got to get him out of the house and then we're fine yeah we're
0: gonna yeah, go. fine yeah happily yeah. ever after right okay that's yeah. fair i i stand by mine but i also identify with understand you're, my you're reasonings yes. got it. Yeah. yeah okay <laughs> so my three are sigourney weaver and Ghostbusters. um okay I didn't write down the name of what she what her name was, but yeah, Uh, Jonah Hill in This is the End. (laughs) I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson um, as Jack Taurus, Taurus in The Shining. Okay, I'm killing Jack. Yes, that's that's scary. He's horrifying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I feel like just because this is the Mm -hmm. end and Ghostbusters are like comedy movies. Yeah. 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 Oh, this is funny. (laughs) Um, I'll marry Jonah and I'll have sex with Sigourney.
0: (laughs) I agree. I agree with everything you just said. We're on the same page. (laughs) All right. Well. All right. um, That's that's another episode of Paranormal. That's this
1: episode.
0: Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us. And uh, do we have any do we have any housekeeping to to go through? Not really. No, not really. Nothing
1: going on. Um, rate, review, and subscribe for yes, us. Yes, do that. We would love that. We've been posting a lot of our reviews on our Instagram, so maybe you'll see your review come mm-hmm. up. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, stay
0: spooky. Yeah, because our show is baby. Baby. Bye. <laughs> Bye.